So simultaneously, you are going to freeze, boil, burn, get the bends, and no longer be able to breathe. Not a good way to go. And I was outside of my first spacewalk when my left eye went blind. And I didn't know why. Suddenly, my left eye slammed shut in great pain, and, and I couldn't figure out what, why my eye wasn't working. NASA's been looking at the Kelly brothers, Scott and Mark, the twins, who have given science really a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to figure out what space travel does to our body. Ground control to Major Tom. Lock your Soyuz hatch and put your helmet on. Six, Ground control five, to Major Tom. Four, three, two, one. So the question is, uh, would you go to space and live on a colony in outer space without return to Earth? That's a really hard question. I think I have too many like ties to people around me to be able to do that. But I think it's cool. Would you, would you go if there was, if we were slowly trying to move the population of Earth to space? Yeah, if I could guarantee like that the people I want to go with me could go with me. I'm a really, like, interpersonal person, so. Absolutely not. I think the Earth is a fantastic place, and I do not have any desire to leave. <laughs> no, thank you. No, I would not like to go and live in a human colony on Mars. Yes, but it depends whether or not it's a one-way trip or a round, way, round trip. Being one of the first people to explore the moon or the Mars and stay there might actually sound cool, but I, I don't think I'm ready to give up my um, Earth life yet. And what do you know about the uh, health effects of going to space? Not much, to be honest, um, besides the fact that you can't really breathe <laughs> there. But yeah. in terms of health effects, I don't know. Um, not terribly much, to be honest. I know there are some um, physical things, like, you know, you lose some muscle mass and maybe your bones lose a little bit of density, stuff like that. But as far as, like, particulars go, I'm not too familiar with it. Well, they just did a research on, like, the twins from the like the NASA astronauts, right? And they found so many different things that went wrong with them. There's definitely going to be a lot of health issues, but I think it's worth definitely worth it to research on it. Is that something you'd be willing to put up with if there is a return ticket? Yes, because we're all going to die anyway. <laughs> Welcome to episode 67 of Raw Talk Podcast. This time, we're talking about space health. Woo! 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 <laughs> My name is Swapna, and I would love to be an astronaut, and I'm with... Famia. Who would also love to be an astronaut? Yeah, I would go to space. Uh -huh. And uh, this is Melissa. I'm not really sure I want to go to space. <laughs> <laughs> and this is Yagnesh, and I would definitely go to space. Three to four, not bad. So we have a lot of space enthusiasts on this episode. Is that by accident? I think not. <laughs> I think there's some sample bias here. Yeah. <laughs> so what are we talking about today? Why, why do you want to go to space, Swapna? Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, there's so many questions about human health and the wonders of space that we don't know that we can answer and that are yet to be answered. But one specific reason why I would want to go to space or become an astronaut is to do a twin study which you'll, you'll hear a lot more about a twin study that actually happened. 
But I want to do that with my twin sister. But I think we have some other astronaut hopefuls potentially around the table. Why do you want to go to space, Thamia? Because it's really cool. <laughs> Basically, I just want to be in like a microgravity environment and fly around in a space shuttle. <laughs> and not do any work whatsoever. I'll do work, but yeah. You, you might have to. There's like uh, yeah, I think that's like one of the requirements. <laughs> <laughs> they don't train you for two years for no, nothing. To go fly around. For a joyride. <laughs> but you'll be happy doing it. Mm-hmm. Though. And yeah, Ignash? I just want to be Indian Neil Armstrong. <laughs> yeah. uh, but more seriously, I, I think doing research uh, in space and in a new environment would be pretty cool. And I'm sure uh, they can use me there. So call me. Yeah. <laughs> Canadian <And> Space Agency. <laughs> yeah. You have three astronaut hopefuls here. And question for you, Mel. Why don't you want to go to space? Um, I think, and some of the people who were word on the street victims... said similar things I think I have a lot of family and friends here and I just have no interest like exploring foreign lands when I already have a lot of foreign lands on earth to still explore so before today everyone also I feel like I should announce people I thought we had already gone to Mars and yeah this is how uninterested I am in space I really thought the Martian was real and all of that stuff um I promise I'm I'm a reasonably intelligent human being. We can corroborate space, that. Space exploration. <laughs> but yeah, I just I think I have a lot of things that I would want to do on Earth and I'm less interested in going to space. But maybe it's because I just don't follow the space news as much as you guys do. I'm are we clo- are we close to taking people to space? What's going on in the world? Well, there's a lot of new private companies that are like reinvigorating this race to space. Um, recently even Donald Trump was has pledged one point one billion dollars to NASA's budget to try and get uh, America back to moon first and then to Mars. But I think SpaceX has really had a big impact on... And what's SpaceX? SpaceX is uh, Elon Musk's, I don't want to call it a startup, but uh, <laughs> is venture. Um, and they've done some really, really cool stuff. So recently, one of their big successes has been reusable rockets. Once they uh, deliver their payload, they can readjust their trajectory and then land back on specific places on Earth. So that removes a lot of the cost from launching people into space, things into space. So um, I think that's been a really big thing. And so all of these new ventures means that more people will be going into space and people will be going there for a much longer amount of time. And although there have been so many astronauts already, we don't really understand a lot about what happens to people, their bodies when they go out into space and what happens when they go out into space for a long period of time. So today's episode, we're talking a lot about space health and the effects on the body. Okay, are you guys ready to launch into this episode? I'll ask you to just start off by introducing yourself. So your name and your current work. Sure. My name is Shane Journay. I'm a physician who specializes in both physical medicine and rehabilitation and occupational medicine. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto and director of academics and research at Providence Healthcare, Unity Health Toronto. In addition to being a physician, Shane holds two master's degrees, one in human thermoregulation and cardiovascular physiology, and another in occupational and environmental medicine. He holds a PhD in toxicology and nanotechnology, and a diploma in space studies from the International Space University. Oh, and we almost forgot, Shane was also an astronaut candidate in the 2017 selection round. 
Okay, so and of course today's episode is about space and space health. And we know that you were an astronaut candidate for the 2017 selection round. So can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to pursue that path of becoming an astronaut? Sure. So most of my background, even going back to my undergraduate days, have really been all around fascination with human health and performance, both physical endeavors and physical function, the science and the excitement of you know exploration and, and pushing humans to new limits. I always found that incredible f- from the get-go. And throughout my graduate training and medical um, training, sort of each experience I had kind of kept coming back to space. And then uh, I had the opportunity to attend the International Space University, which in France, that basically pulled everything together and and looked at the interdisciplinary nature of, of space. And so, you know, it was always sort of a goal of mine to be involved in some of the research that may benefit space. Um, and as I progressed in medicine, the benefits to people here on Earth but really I felt like I could have done a very good job um, as an astronaut. So how has the training and experience in training to become a physician been applicable directly to your experience trying to become an astronaut through the astronaut candidacy? So certainly from a human performance standpoint, both of my areas of medicine, physical medicine and rehab, and occupational medicine, and that includes aerospace medicine and flight medicine, sort of all brought to the forefront the challenges that astronauts face. But certainly going through many years of medical training and research training really positioned someone to potentially apply to become an astronaut or potentially fly in space. You know, you need some physical attributes, you need stamina, you need to think under pressure with sick patients, you need to be a good communicator, all of which you get as a medical trainee in a residency program. And are there any particular physical or health requirements that are typically expected of a, a, an astronaut candidate? Uh, yes. So you have to be fit and extremely healthy. <laughs> and But that being said, you don't have to be an Olympic athlete either. So some of the preliminary medical screening is just simply, do you meet the bare minimum to potentially go on and do other such testing in order to go in space? However, in the final phases, astronauts undergo very rigorous testing, some of which is even far beyond what is required of their occupation. And then, of course, you have to be fit to fly. So if you Let's say you, you pass through the astronaut training down in Houston and you're, you're now called an astronaut and you're ready to fly. You're still monitored to see if you're uh, ready to go. And then when you come back, you undergo spaceflight rehabilitation, which is near and dear to my heart. And then you have to be ready to fly once again. So you actually have to recuperate from your time in space in order to be fit to fly a second time. So there's lots of things uh, that come together. Can you speak a little bit more about that recuperation process? Like what is the rehab like and why do they need it? So the the human body in many ways was not meant to be in microgravity, right? The only thing our bodies know, you know, from the time we're in the womb to the time we're born is gravity. And so immediately upon entering microgravity, there's some very new changes. The vestibular system is really quite upset. People get nauseous and they throw up in space. But over prolonged periods, 
people can lose muscle mass, strength, um, bone density. Um, there's a newer issue on the space station now that we've only seen with long duration spike, and that's uh, vision loss. So a not insignificant number of astronauts have changes to their vision while on the space station. You're also isolated, and you're exposed to more radiation than, uh, than most people have ever known. So when they do come back, there's a preliminary phase. Um, you know, some folks come back now, and their, their blood pressure can drop, so they can faint for the first few days. They can walk into walls. Um, and there's actually a designated sort of rehabilitation program that occurs for them over the first few days, first few weeks, and first few months, which includes balance retraining, resistance training, and cardiovascular training. The other piece to this is there's actually a really quite extraordinary piece of exercise equipment on the space station for both resistance training and cardiovascular training. And those exercise prescriptions are actually given out by uh, exercise physiologists at NASA for each individual astronaut. And so you'll see them, you know, on Twitter or on, on NASA television. They're running on that treadmill or doing the weight training, uh, you know, up to two hours a day sometimes, and that is regimented. So if they stick to that, you know, some people were actually mitigating some of these effects on bone and muscle while they're on station. Uh, but it still doesn't change the fact they're a little dizzy and a little worn out from being, being on station for six months. Shane gave us an insider's look at the candidacy process to become an astronaut, and it involves a lot of steps and preparation to ensure that astronauts are well-suited to the real thing, spaceflight. He also gave us some insights into the physiological effects of space on health, so we sat down with a former Canadian Space Agency astronaut, Dave Williams, to learn about what life's like in space. We also chat with Dave about his Canadian record for spacewalks, applications of space science for robotics used in medicine here on Earth, and how being an astronaut is actually a lot like being a graduate student. So we are over the moon thrilled to have Dr. Dave Williams, an ER physician, aquanaut, jet pilot, hospital CEO, and now best-selling author with us today for Raw Talk. Um, and you also have a record for the time spent by a Canadian on spacewalks. Yes, that's correct. I was very lucky. Had a chance to do three spacewalks, spending over 17 hours outside the space station, helping build the space station. That's incredible. And growing up, there were no previous Canadian astronauts for you to look up to. So what inspired you to become an astronaut and what did your path look like? You know, I think the most important thing I've learned is don't let other people define your dreams for you. Find what it is you want to do and just go for it. I was seven years old in 1961, and I watched Alan Shepard lift off to go into space. Thought, that's what I want to do with my life. I want to be an astronaut and be a scientist and do research in outer space. And I was told that was impossible. Fortunately, I didn't believe the people that told me that. And it took many years later, I was 38, and I applied to the Canadian Space Program in 1992 and was very lucky to be selected as an astronaut. And when you're up in space, how do eating, sleeping, and hygiene change? So there's a whole host of questions about how our bodies adapt to being in space, simple things like eating in space. And I wrote a series of kids' books focusing on STEM, and it's the Astro Dave MD uh, series of books. The first one's called To Burp or Not to Burp. <laughs> and that one deals with all the eating questions, the going to the bathroom questions and things like that. But eating in space is very much like it is on Earth, except we're eating essentially freeze-dried food. It's like 
like camping food. After a while, the food gets a little bit boring. And in the beginning of the mission, your taste isn't the same as it is normally. You feel like you've got a cold with all the volume shifts that take place and fluid coming from your lower extremities up into your chest and your face. Your face gets really, really puffy. Your nose is congested and things just don't taste the same. So everybody likes horseradish or spicy sauces like wasabi. Right, right. And I heard one of your uh, fellow astronauts really loved Tabasco sauce in space. Tabasco sauce is very popular. There's no question about it. (laughs) And uh, how's sleeping different in space? Because you can't just lie down to sleep because of the microgravity. Well, in microgravity, you can sleep in any orientation you want. We have something called a sleep restraint system. It essentially looks like a sleeping bag. You can attach it to the wall, the ceiling, the floor, whatever orientation you want to be in. And essentially, all you do is you close your eyes and you fall asleep. Your arms will float up in front of you and your legs, if they're not in the sleep restraint system, your legs will bend a little bit. Mm -hmm. And the fun part is just simply taking a nap so you don't actually climb into your sleeping bag. You just close your eyes and float around. That's amazing. (laughs) Truly an experience we don't really get here on Earth. Not so often. And how does hygiene change in space? You mentioned that you wrote about this in your Astro Dave MD books, uh, but just a little bit of uh, detail for our listeners. Yeah, so hygiene... Everything seems to take a little bit more time when you're in space. So we don't have a shower on board the space station. We certainly don't have a shower on the space shuttle or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So you have to take a towel bath. So you wet a towel and you basically wipe yourself off with that. We have rinseless shampoo that we use in our hair. So you can shampoo your hair and then basically towel everything off. And that works pretty well. If you're exercising, you'll notice that sweat pools on your body. And that's kind of a bizarre sensation things but then afterwards you take your uh, top off and you clean yourself well and things and it works out but hygiene in space is just as important as it is on the ground so making sure that we're able to stay clean is very important. Right and what kind of precautions did you have to take before a flight in order to make sure you stay healthy? We do have quarantine before we go into space, and typically in the U.S. program, the quarantine lasts a week, and uh, we lift off from Kennedy Space Center in Florida. So part of that week, we're actually in Houston for three or four days, and then we fly down to Kennedy Space Center, and we stay in quarantine the whole time before the space flight to make sure we don't get sick. In the past, in the era of the Apollo space flight program, they also stayed in quarantine after they came back (laughs) because they weren't sure if there were any living organisms on the surface of the moon and they didn't want to potentially contaminate the earth and of course they found out that there weren't any so in the subsequent Apollo missions there was no quarantine after After. the crew members came back. How did they select the time period for a quarantine before going up so the the week-long period? So basically they select the time period to make sure that you don't have any viral infections or infectious diseases like that when you go into space. That's the biggest challenge. And of course, prior to implementing the quarantine, we did have crew members lift off to go into space with a cold or a runny nose. And it makes it very difficult to be able to do a spacewalk because you have to equalize the pressure in your middle ear when you're in the lower pressure environment of the spacesuit. So that can be particularly problematic. Right. And I imagine just even in the inside, that would be problematic because you already have that pressure buildup where your fluid is held in your upper body and so that would be more uncomfortable for anyone who has a cold. Yes any pressure changes would become very difficult and of course on board the space station the space shuttle the atmospheric pressure is the same as it is on earth but back in the days of Mercury, Gemini and Apollo the atmospheric pressure inside the spacecraft was a lot less Mm -hmm. so if they had a cold or upper respiratory tract infection it would be a significant problem for them.
Yikes. <laughs> and what kind of health or physical changes did you personally experience while flying? You know, when you're in space, you become deconditioned and your muscles lose strength, your bone density decreases roughly at around one and a half to two percent per month. I was only in space for a couple of weeks, 14 days and 16 days. So I had relatively minimal changes in my bone density, but you could certainly feel the changes that take place in your strength and uh, more so in your lower extremities when you come back to earth and you notice just standing up seems to take a lot more strength than it did before you lifted off to go into space. And that's one of the reasons why we exercise when we're in space to try and prevent some of these changes from taking place. Right. (laughs) And what did, for you specifically, what did recovery look like when you got back to Earth? So I was very fortunate. I recovered fairly quickly. And uh, generally, the time that it takes to recover is about one and a half to two times the mission duration. So, you know, if you're in space for six months or so, it's going to be nine months to a year that it'll take you to get totally back to normal. And it's similar with a short duration crew member. So if you're in space a couple of weeks, it's going to be, you know, two to three weeks, maybe a month or so for you to get back into shape. And you flew with Scott Kelly, who participated in the famous twin study um, that was recently published. Did you take part in a lot of research projects when you were in space? And what were some of the tasks that you did? What were maybe some of the findings from those projects? And um, I know that you were part of Neurolab, STS-90. So maybe you can speak to a little bit about that. And on Neurolab, STS-90, I was essentially there as a neuroscientist, but also there as a research subject as well. So we were understanding how the brain adapted to being in space. We had uh, baby rats that we took into space with us who went through the critical window of developing their walking behavior in the absence of gravity. And then the question would be when they came back to Earth and had to relearn how to walk on Earth, would they be forever space rats and would their walking be abnormal or would they be able to relearn how to walk on Earth after they've gone through that critical window of development? So it turns out they were able to learn to rewalk, which suggests that these critical windows of development of the nervous system may have a degree of plasticity to them, may not be as fixed as we thought they were in the beginning and things. And uh, it's really remarkable being able to take those scientific results from space and bring them back here on Earth. That's pretty phenomenal. That's a really cool research study. Um, And how do astronauts in general collaborate? You, You were saying that you were there as a research scientist and a subject, but how do in general astronauts collaborate with research scientists to develop our understanding of the effects of space on the human body? There has to be a really close relationship between the astronauts and the researchers, primarily because we become graduate students for some of the best scientists in the world. So whether we're doing life science experiment, uh, uh, fluid physics experiments, whatever it might be, we actually have to make those experiments work in space, work with all the hardware, solve any problems that take place, and make sure that we're getting publishable data for the investigator. So it's pretty exciting being able to do that. And I like what you said about being kind of like a graduate student because that's something that a lot of our listeners can relate to as graduate students ourselves. I think we all have fond memories of those days in graduate (laughs) school. Um, So this comes to a question of why is space health research important in general um, for us to develop? 
So there's many different reasons why space, space health research is critical. You know, you could start off by focusing on the technological issues associated with the challenges of medicine and what we're doing in space medicine, and think about the evolution of technologies that have been built in support of the space program that are used every day in a hospital. Mm-hmm. A great example of that would be critical care monitoring, originally developed for the Apollo astronauts when they were walking on the surface of the moon so we could record their heart rates, but at the same time implemented in the 1960s in critical care units to be able to record and monitor electrocardiographic activity. And then, of course, you evolve from there and you think about the application of big robots like the Canada Arm to robotic surgery. Right. And there have been tremendous spinoffs. In fact, McDonald Detweiler built NeuroArm. It's a neurosurgical robot capable of being used with intraoperative MRI, a direct derivation of what we're doing on the space station, but essentially miniaturized. So part of the reason why we um, go to space is to be able to develop these technologies and improve healthcare back on Earth. But more importantly, we also begin to understand the changes that take place in the human body. Mm-hmm. And space flight is all about physiologic transitions. You go from 1G on Earth to zero G in space, mm-hmm. and then if you're going to land on the moon or Mars, whatever it might be, there's a partial gravitational environment, then back to zero G, coming back to Earth, and then back to one G. A lot of changes. That's a lot of changes. <laughs> so how do we optimize those? And I think what we learn from that is the importance of being able to mitigate things like bone loss and osteoporosis. Right. And if we can apply what we learn in space to the aging population, maybe we can decrease the rate of bone loss associated with aging. We understand the whole process of cardiovascular deconditioning, Mm -hmm. uh, vestibular dysfunction, and vertigo and things. So all of these lessons that we learn in terms of how the body functions in space are directly applicable to healthcare here on Earth. Those are some pretty cool applications for here on Earth, and I loved hearing about how the Canada arm kind of inspired a miniature version for uh, neurosurgery. Dave described some of his research on his first space mission, STS-90, the Neurolab. During his second space mission, STS-118, he flew with Scott Kelly, who served as commander of that mission. Scott Kelly was also a participant in the NASA twin study. This study was recently released and provides really interesting insights on the effects of spaceflight on human health. There are various exposures that astronauts experience in space, including confinement and isolation, radiation, microgravity, and to some extent, noise. The twin study was a unique opportunity to compare two twin astronauts to better understand the effect of these exposures. These astronauts were Scott Kelly, who went to space, and his twin brother, Mark Kelly, who stayed on Earth. The twin study was also unique because of the length of time of Scott Kelly's space mission, 340 days. To date, there are only eight astronauts that have flown long-duration missions over 300 days out of the 559 astronauts that have made the trip to space, so a pretty small fraction. While researchers are still interpreting the data from this incredible study, some results were recently released, and they show that there were several measures that changed in spaceflight. Some of these changes were observed in measures of, for example, increased peripapillary total retinal thickness, affecting his vision, as well as his body mass, microbiome composition in his gut, gene regulation, and various serum metabolites. Most changes returned to normal when he returned to Earth, but a few persisted, even six months after returning to Earth. Those changes included changes in his telomeres, with potential implications for long-term health changes, as well as changes to his accuracy and speed. 
Not every measure was found to have changed in spaceflight, though, like Scott Kelly's immune response to vaccination. I think that's really interesting that they didn't find any long-term changes in uh, Scott Kelly's immune system since there have been certain studies that looked at viral load in astronauts before and after flights, and they found that over 50% of the astronauts from shuttle flights have increased viral shedding of one or more herpes viruses in their saliva or urine. And this percentage has increased for astronauts on longer missions like uh, the ISS missions, suggesting there's a time component to this observation. The exact mechanism of how this happens is not known, but this just highlights how much more research is needed in the field because there's huge implications for long-term space travel with immunocompromised individuals, if this is the case. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. And you're right, that really does point to the need for more research to better understand exactly how human health is impacted by exposures in space. And here, closer to home, the Canadian Space Agency is also involved in examining some of these questions. The Canadian Space Agency works with international collaborators on a number of research projects, including how spaceflight affects human health. We wanted to highlight the seven studies currently being conducted on health. The first is called T-Bone. And nope, it's not about stakes in space. This study examines the effect of microgravity on bone health. In space, 1.5% per month is lost compared to a typical 1% per year on Earth. Researchers are looking to understand how bone structure changes in space, how it reverses when astronauts return to Earth, and how this can help doctors manage bone fractures that happen because of reduced bone density. The second study is known as At Home in Space. This explores how astronauts adapt to life on the ISS, considering the stresses of spaceflight, close quarters, and even homesickness. Researchers are looking to understand how to create a space culture that incorporates the cultures and backgrounds of all the astronauts coming from all over the world. On Earth, this kind of research can help in situations where folks are isolated in remote settings, like in the military or in some research contexts, such as the polar regions. The third study examines the effects of spaceflight on cardiovascular health. Our cardiovascular systems are quite functional in gravity, but when in microgravity, things get trickier. Researchers are assessing how the stresses of space affect the cardiovascular system and how that can be related to aging. Spaceflight is not without its occupational hazards. This includes exposure to radiation. The fourth project that researchers are working on is to understand a major type of radiation, neutron radiation, which accounts for about a third of the radiation exposure in spaceflight. The study aims include measuring intensity to find relative safe spots on the ISS. Wayfinding is the focus of the fifth study, examining the effects of microgravity on spatial orientation. Visual, proprioceptive, and vestibular information is used by our brains to help us find our way in what we experience as normal gravity here on Earth, but this changes in microgravity, and researchers are hoping to understand how to help astronauts adapt so they can optimally navigate on spacewalks and all around the International Space Station. We sat down with two guests who are involved in the sixth and seventh research studies that the CSA is undertaking on Vection and the immune status of astronauts in space. To learn more about the Vection project specifically, we sat down with lead investigator of Vection, Dr. Lawrence Harris. Dr. Harris is a professor of psychology, kinesiology, and health sciences and biology at York University. But first, what is Vection? Okay, so Vection... Uh, refers to a project which is looking at our perception of self-motion. The term vection describes the sensation of self-motion when you yourself are actually still, but the world next to you is moving. 
You might have experienced this when you're in a car or in a train and the train next to you or the, the truck next to you moves away and it gives you the sensation that you're in fact the one that's that's moving. And uh, so it's, it's part of our normal everyday experience, but it's unusual to have only visual cues. But when I move normally, just forwards and backwards or whatever around the room, I'm having visual motion as well as my other cues that tell me about it. And those cues are integrated in the normal way, in the multisensory integration way, and so they contribute to our perception of how we move around the world and how I know where the door is and how I know where you are and all that sort of thing as I change my relationship uh, to you by moving around the room. Uh, so that's what we're actually looking at here. We're looking at how your perception of self-motion is influenced by the lack of gravity. So in order to do that, we are using uh, visual cues in space and asking people about their perception of their, of their self-motion. Now, in order to present those cues, what we're using is virtual reality. So they're wearing an Oculus headset so that we can control their, what they see visually. And they're uh, suspended in the middle of, of the uh, module, in the space module there, so they don't bump into things. Because once you wear a helmet, you can't see anything and you're in danger of possibly of bumping into things, which obviously uh, makes NASA very nervous. So we have to make sure that the people are uh, safely held away from the walls of the spacecraft. It's also important from our science that they don't bump into things because that would give them other cues about whether they were moving and so forth. And so inside this uh, Oculus, inside the virtual reality display, we show them targets. Uh, they see a corridor stretching off into the distance, and down that corridor there are various targets. And so they're asked to look at these targets one at a time, and the target then disappears, and we move the corridor past them. That produces the vection sensation that they themselves are moving down the corridor. If you've ever played any video games, you know that this can be quite a compelling uh, uh, experience. And all they have to do is press a button when they get to the target. And that gives us an idea of how much optic flow, how much visual motion they need in order to perceive that they've gone through a certain distance. And we do this at several different distances, and so we can actually end up calculating how their brain is using the visual motion to tell them about their, their physical motion. So that's one of the experiments that we're doing. Uh, this, a second one is in order to sort of understand the first one. Because we're giving them targets at different distances, and then we're asking them to move to those targets. What if it's their perception of the distance that's incorrect? Not, the, not their own movement, but the perception of the targets. So we'll have a second experiment in which we're trying to measure that. The third experiment is even more ambitious. The third experiment is looking at whether we can create visual gravity. What we do is we accelerate people down this corridor... And then suddenly everything goes blank and they're asked to arrange the floor of the virtual world uh, to indicate where they see the floor relative to where the floor was before they started. The idea being that if they interpret the visual acceleration as a, a new gravity, then that will be in an orthogonal direction to their, where they were moving, and they should therefore see gravity as moving into that plane as well, and they'd have to tilt the floor to match that uh, orientation. But that's, uh, that's the third experiment, uh, a, a little more ambitious than the other two, but uh, rather exciting in terms of its possibilities. Wow. These are very innovative techniques to examine the perception of motion and microgravity. I know you've worked with astronauts such as David Saint-Jacques, who was the most recent Canadian astronaut to come back from the International Space Station. Are you able to share some of the preliminary results that you've uh, found with him? 
Well, data from an N of one is always a controversial thing to do. <laughs> so I don't think I want to tell you anything about the actual results that we've found with this with this one astronaut. Uh, but we are gradually collecting from a larger uh, population where we're going to have seven at least, and we may be able to extend the project to cover even more astronauts uh, later on. It's only then that we'll be able to make statistically sensible statements. So I'm afraid I can't actually say anything at this point about the data. I see. Do you have a hard time convincing astronauts to participate in your experiments? Um, no, no, I don't. Uh, the, the way that this works is that we have to um, address each astronaut with a description of the project and so forth. Uh, I, on a couple of occasions, I've gone down to JSC in order to, the Johnson Space Center to um, talk directly to the astronauts about this. And often we do it by a video link. So the astronauts get a detailed experimental exp explanation of what we're going to be doing for 15-minute, 15, 15 very tight 15-minute window that we're allowed to talk to them and, and to present the project. And then they may ask, ask some clarifying questions or something. And then they go away, and eventually they decide either they're going to do the project or not do the project. And they'll sign the uh, ethics uh, accepting form accordingly. Our um, project is in competition with more physiologically based uh, projects such as involving blood samples or bone samples or I don't know exactly what but other sort of more biological and more invasive procedures. So the idea of playing a video game in space on an, uh, in virtual reality is generally rather appealing and so far we've had a very high success rate for the people uh, signing up to do the experiment. As we alluded to earlier, Vection is the sixth of a series of projects run by the CSA dedicated to health research. The final project examines the immune system. We sat down with Marika DeCourt, a graduate student in Dr. Chen Wang's lab, which is involved with ongoing CSA research on immunology. Previous studies have shown immune dysregulation as a result of spaceflight. This has been reported in many aspects, such as T-cell functioning, B-cell functioning, different levels of inflammatory cytokines, things like that. So these previous studies have typically taken blood samples before and after flight. And then, you know, some studies have also taken blood samples during flight as well. But there's never been a platform on board of the International Space Station to analyze these results in real time. The samples that are taken during flight in the past have had to basically being transmitted back down to Earth upon the astronaut's return. So with that, I guess the two main goals of the Immunoprofile Project are that, for one, uh, it wants to establish the capacity for this blood analysis to take place on board of the International Space Station uh, through a new piece of hardware called the Bioanalyzer, which I can talk a little bit about later. And then the second piece is, of course, to explore the dynamic changes in immune function um, throughout spaceflight. Mm -hmm. I, I can see the utility in sort of tracking the immune function over time versus what uh, happened with the twin study where they took samples before and after coming for sure. So can you describe more about the bioanalyzer equipment that you mentioned earlier? Absolutely. So essentially, it's a new piece of hardware that's been developed for this project, and it, it will allow for the capability to perform blood analysis on board of the International Space Station. So essentially, it'll be able to um, track immune cell counts, as well as cytokine measurements to measure the overall immune status of the astronauts. 
As it stands now, the bioanalyzer is still sort of in its development phase. So the first iteration of the piece of hardware has been sent to the International Space Station and was actually tested by the Canadian astronaut David Saint-Jacques. There's a few tweaks that have to happen before it can be used in a research context, but it's very exciting and we're hoping to get it up and running soon. Marika also gave us insight on her second project, examining the effects of microgravity on specific immune compartments. So I'll just give a brief background on the other project that I'm working on. So I'm conducting simulated microgravity experiments so that I can do some research on Earth as well, but within the sphere of space medicine. So um, essentially what I'll be doing is subjecting natural killer cells to simulated microgravity to assess um, how that condition changes the cells in general and their functionality and things like that. How do you induce certain microgravity uh, environment? That's a great question. So I have a piece of specialized equipment that does it for me, and it's basically a rotary cell culture device. So what it does is it rotates the cell culture on a horizontal axis and essentially keeps the cells in a constant state of free fall. So when the cells are rotating synchronously with the vessel, It basically induces randomization of the gravity vectors, which essentially models microgravity. So we're able to induce that condition that way and study its effects on Earth. Oh, that sounds great. I I was actually thinking of a completely ludicrous idea. I've heard of some microgravity experiments being done on uh, parabolic flight paths and I was just trying to wrap my head around how cell culture in that would work. Yeah, absolutely. No, parabolic flight is is definitely used as well. It's a little difficult for use in a biological context because when you're doing parabolic flight, you only get about 20 seconds of oh, yeah. microgravity at a time. So it's not really enough time to, to activate anything biologically relevant, unfortunately, but... I know they do call them the vomit comic. So <laughs> I, I also can't imagine trying to do uh, tissue culture and microgravity. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Like on one of those flights. Yeah, that'd be pretty intense. <laughs> what, what are the implications of your research on the health of the astronauts and what we can find out about it? What we're preparing for essentially are longer duration space flights. So, you know, the world has committed to going back to the moon. Um, as well as all the way to Mars. So these are, as you can imagine, longer duration space flight missions. And, you know, we're kind of gearing up to troubleshoot what kind of health implications the astronauts could potentially experience as a result of these longer duration missions. All of this research in space couldn't be done without the tools developed in collaboration with the Canadian Space Agency and other organizations to help with data collection in the unique environment of the International Space Station. What do these tools look like? You heard a little about the Oculus setup from Dr. Harris earlier, and next you'll hear from the CEO and co-founder of Hexoskin, a Montreal-based company that develops intelligent textiles for wearable data collection systems for the continuous collection of a plethora of vital signs and general physiological information. Here we have with us Pierre-Alexandre Fournier, CEO and co-founder of Hexoskin, a company that's the developer and maker of intelligent textiles to improve access to physiological data, prevention, rehab, research, and medicine. Thanks for joining us, Pierre. Hello, thanks for having me. We wanted to start with how did the idea of Hexoskin come to be and and what exactly is Hexoskin? 
Well, when we founded Exoskin, we were thinking about how it should look like to have an AI health professionals take care of people with chronic disease. And we realized that we needed inputs for that, that software AI um, that would be used to take care of an aging population, people with chronic cardiac, chronic respiratory diseases. So we understood that we had to solve the data problem. How do you build a system that can collect data, ideally passively, uh, from patients at home in real life situations so that you can feed a software that can help our health system manage these population efficiently and uh, to improve outcomes uh, and to do it uh, with the resources we have. So it's, it's been a long journey, uh, but now we have this very stable system that can operate at a large scale uh, that is being used by thousands of users in dozens of countries around the world for, for health research, for taking care of people at home uh, with first responders, with astronauts, with elite athletes. Uh, by pharma companies and uh, universities all around the world. That's incredible. Um, and you mentioned astronauts, and your company has recently launched AstroSkin, an intelligent textile-based product for use in space and space science. So tell us and tell our listeners what an intelligent textile actually is and why it's ideal for use in the application of space science. So in the case of Exoskin and AstroSkin, for example, we use uh, conductive textiles to create an interface with the skin that is flexible, soft, and, and that can conform to your body shape. We, we want these things to look like the things that we had before, but now we want these things to do jobs for us. And, and one of these jobs is health monitoring. So we, we want these shirts to be as, as much as possible like the shirts people know, uh, except that they accomplish this very important task of uh, remote vital science monitoring. That's great. So while wearing them, everyone, including these astronauts, will still have full range of motion and they're able to do everything that they need to do. Well, yes. And that's why we've been working with the Canadian Space Agency uh, since 2011 and other space agencies like NASA and Europeans on this. Basically, the astronaut time is very valuable. So you cannot ask an astronaut to do a lot of tasks. They're running a lot of experiments in space. About half of these experiments are on themselves, actually. It's about human health in space. So we wanted to provide uh, the astronauts a system that could do the job of vital science monitoring without being in the way of the other tasks. That's fantastic. And astronauts only spend so much time in space in each given mission and each year. So it's really great that your technology is able to make space science more efficient so they can get more done in a given period of time. So I'm wondering, what role does HexoSkin play specifically today in the Canadian Space Agency research? Um, AstroSkin is based on the CSA's biomonitor. Can you tell us a bit more about that and the, the development of it? Yeah, so, so the, the AstroSkin is the sensing part. The biomonitor system is a, the complete space-grade vital science monitoring system. So it includes the AstroSkin, but it also includes a space computer uh, that we've designed to download data from the AstroSkin to ground operations. So, so, so that's, that's the whole system. And, and with the Canadian Space Agency and NASA, uh, what we're doing is we're studying physiology in space, but also before space missions and after space missions to better understand what is the effect of space travel and microgravity, on, especially on the human body. And, and that's for the ISS. We hope to collaborate also with um, private space uh, companies 
uh, that are going to be sending astronauts in space, most probably starting next year, mm. uh, to collect additional data. And basically, we want to build the largest data set of vital science data in microgravity uh, in the world so that we can support these medical systems for long-term space missions. Out of this world, that's really cool. Um, what is the advantage, by the way, of using AstroSkin in the biomonitor and data collection in microgravity rather than other types of devices that might be available today? Well, I'd say it's, it's setup time. You save on setup time. It's a system that people wear and forget. Uh, and it's a, it's a complete vital science monitoring system. So we, we've designed the AstroSkin to replace all the monitors you would have by an hospital bed. So we can do a three-channel three ECG, we monitor breathing, skin temperature, PPG, SpO2, systolic blood pressure, movement. So we have a complete view of human physiology. Yeah, that's that a pretty comprehensive panel of physiological data. Yes, and it's it's all collected in one place. So that, that's pretty unique. Most of the sensors that, that we've put on astronauts before collected only a, a subset of these vital signs. So you can wear this at all times, including sleep and exercise, whatever activity you're doing? Oh, yes, absolutely. So um, so they, they wear it during training and they, it, astronauts do a lot of exercise. They mm -hmm. do typically two hours of exercise a day or more than two hours of exercise a day. And that, that's just to try to pre preserve their muscle mass and bone mass. And they, they, they're still losing a lot of it. Right. Uh, and one of the one of the main challenges for astronauts in the ISS is sleeping. The thing is, our sleep is regulated a lot by the amount of light and sunlight that we get mm -hmm. here on Earth. And the problem with the International Space Station is that it goes around the Earth 16 times a day. Wow. So you have 16 you know, sunsets a day. And basically, you don't know what time it is. Right. So so when should you go to sleep? So it's, it's a real challenge to keep a schedule. And one of the things that AstroSkin uh, allows to study is, is circadian rhythms. Mm -hmm. So how, how does your vital signs and hormones uh, evolve uh, over a 24-hour cycle? And how is it affected by the conditions in the International Space Station? That's pretty cool that you can also get information about how spaceflight disrupts their circadian rhythms. How are these devices maintained in space? Or do they have to be maintained in space? So it, no, it's a, it's a really really good question because it's 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 a huge part of ma taking the technology and making it space great. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we had to do with the AstroSkin was that we we had to get rid of the lithium rechargeable batteries. Okay, yeah. Because it's it's not something that they're very comfortable with in the space station. They use some of these batteries in the space station. But because lithium is inflammable mm -hmm. and you have to do a lot of qualifications, we've decided to go with normal AA batteries. Okay. So avoid that so, fire hazard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and another thing is, is clothing. So on Earth, if you buy exoskin shirts or astroskin shirts, you can wash them in the washing machine. Cold cycle, hang to dry, very simple, very convenient. But they don't have a washing machine in the space station. No. <laughs> so, but but again, it's like on Earth. So, what do they do with their smart shirts? They do the same thing that they do with the other shirts. They wear it as long as possible without being uncomfortable, mm -hmm. and and then they they have to throw it away. Oh, so that's an insight on how laundry is done in space. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But the, the the nice thing about the Astro Skin shirts and the Exoskin shirts is that. Contrary to, to your normal t-shirt, they have this antibacterial, anti-other treatment on them. So you can wear them for two weeks in a row and it, it's not going to smell. 
Oh, great. So if you do that with a normal T-shirt, you're <laughs> some of your friends are going to leave you. <laughs> and you can't. There's but, not much place you can go in in space, right? No, when you're on no, the spaceship. No. So that's no, great. The, yeah, the ISS is. It's a little bit like camping. Uh-huh. You know, it's, it's, imagine that you go camping in a VR, except that you don't really get out of the VR for Ever. six months. <laughs> yeah, that's a great analogy. Anybody who's trying to train for space, go camping. <laughs> <laughs> And so what's next for Hexoskin in space science? So, uh, well, we're going to keep running experiments in the International Space Station with the various space agencies. Uh, the, the system is funded until at least 2023, and we hope to renew that funding after that. So we're, we're going to be collecting a lot of data on a lot of astronauts, uh, which is great. And well, we, we hope that we participate in future missions uh, to the moon in 2024, uh, the Artemis missions. And I mean, we, we're talking with NASA and CSA on a regular basis about how to prepare to these future missions uh, to the moon and to the to the missions uh, to Mars that will follow. Wow. So next stop for Hexoskin might very well be the moon. Yes, we hope so. So now you know what space medicine and health research looks like on the International Space Station and what Canadian collaborators are researching, as well as how they collect a lot of their data. But what does this have to do with all of us here back on Earth? Lots. Shane Journay, Lawrence Harris, Marika Decorte, and Pierre-Alexandre Fournier talk about the many applications of space health research for us Earthlings. But spaceflight is important for so many reasons, to inspire young Canadians in science and technology, for educational purposes. But from a medical standpoint, which is near and dear to my heart, is... Uh, you know, there's a lot of things we can learn about the human body and about science on the space station and microgravity that affects all of us here on Earth. Um, I work at a rehabilitation hospital, people who are aging, suffering from weakness and bone loss. And I tell my patients every day, you know, you're all astronauts. You know, you've been in hospital or the intensive care unit for a month. You haven't walked in four weeks and you have to recuperate from that. And so our understanding of how we lose bone, how we lose strength, how we lose balance can really make some gains in this area. And so that's really paramount to what I do on a daily basis. There's many others, telemedicine, isolation, the psychological impacts of space that are really still evolving as we, as we stay in space longer. Um, yes, there is a thesis around at the moment that uh, being in space is actually a, a good model for old, for aging, for the aging process. So, for example, there's um, loss of bone and uh, uh, challenges to the cardiovascular system and so forth. So these uh, changes are thought to possibly model or be useful to model uh, effects of aging. Now, on Earth... There are uh, clinical situations where uh, self-motion is, is not so, so easy. Uh, for example, in Parkinson's syndrome, they have problems with the shuffling movements and so forth. They're not clear about their movements. And one of the big problems with Parkinson's patients is that they tend to be unstable and to, and to fall over. So understanding how the vestibular cues and the visual cues can adapt to each other and be malleable will hopefully be very helpful for helping such patients on, on Earth. How it adapts in space may give us some clues about how we might be able to adapt it here on Earth. Even the technologies that are developed for space can be translated back down to Earth as well. Even the bioanalyzer, you know, has been 
introduced as a piece of hardware that can be used in rural medicine in remote locations where you know they don't have huge access to different pieces of equipment that they might need so our products are used for remote patient monitoring of people with chronic cardiac respiratory diseases but what we found also is that people were buying our platform for other users. Some of them are research projects from universities or clinical trials, pharma companies, and, and others are research on rare diseases. With rare diseases, in some cases, you only have access to a few hundred patients. And to run a research and to collect data on these patients, you need to recruit patients in maybe 15 different cities. So how do you manage data collection of vital signs in that kind of population that's very sparse, they're everywhere, it needs to be convenient, you want to record a lot of data. That's, I think that's the beauty of it. Finally, for all you astronaut hopefuls or anyone needing a bit of inspiration to help reach some distant goal, we asked Dave Williams for some advice. And your journey to become an astronaut has been incredibly impressive, and you probably learned a few lessons along the way. Can you tell us about a time that you failed and what you took from it? Yeah, I write about this in my book, Defying Limits, and uh, that was one of the reasons why I wrote the book. But more importantly, I wrote the book to share with everyone the importance of living life to the fullest while we can. Because as a physician, I've seen many patients at the end of their lives with regrets. And they say, I only wish I had spent more time with my family or spent more time with my kids, traveled more, or done things like that instead of working more. So that was one of the reasons why I wrote the book. But I also wanted to point out that sometimes life is not a linear journey. There's twists and turns and ups and downs. And I actually don't believe that the importance of life is the pursuit of happiness. I believe that the most important thing in life is the pursuit of meaning. Hmm. And I found that when I was 50 years old and I was diagnosed with cancer, I lost all my medical certification as an astronaut and a pilot, I had to get it all back, and I flew in space on my second space flight as a cancer survivor, but wow. that journey wasn't easy. When I was first diagnosed, I actually thought I was going to die, and I'm a doctor. I should probably know better, but we're humans first, and that's the initial reaction when you hear catastrophic news like that. So it really is all about the journey. Don't let other people define your journey for you. Work hard. Be resilient. Try and find the meaning in all the challenges that we face, and life can truly be an amazing process. That's a pretty inspiring story. Thanks for sharing that. Can you tell us a little bit more about your book? You have now your paperback release of this best-selling book, Defying Limits. Yes. Well, thanks very much. I'm thrilled that it's now out in paperback and came out in hardcover uh, about 11 months ago, actually. And it initially became a bestseller in Canada. I was absolutely thrilled that that happened and things. And I, over the last year, I've been on speaking circuits talking about the book. And basically, the book uh, does center around my life, but it also focuses on the lessons that I've learned throughout my career and the challenges that I've had in going forward and being able to achieve my dreams and fly in space. It speaks about the beauty of exploring space and how incredible that really is to look out at the black infinite void of space and see our beautiful blue planet cast against this darkness of space. What advice would you have for anyone who's interested in going into space health research or becoming an astronaut themselves? 
So I think the important thing is to believe in yourself, believe in your dreams, recognize that the probability, certainly becoming an astronaut, is very small. It's a very competitive process. Mm -hmm. So don't solely rely on becoming an astronaut. I think one of the things that's, for me, very important is a love of science, a passion for scientific research. So I would have continued my career as a clinician and as a researcher had I not become an astronaut. It's just I was able to do both of those things but do it in space, which makes it even more exciting. But I think, you know, it is important to have those dreams and to be able to pursue those dreams. Um, I've said many times, don't let other people defy your, your dreams for you. And that's so critical. Also, don't think of uh, things as being impossible. You know, when I was in first year as an undergraduate, which was in the last millennium, by the <laughs> way, I was taught that it was impossible to map the human genome. And now we're doing genomics on board the International Space Station. Yeah. So I think the use of the word impossible, we should probably actually get rid of that word out of our vocabulary, take the letters I am out of the word impossible and try and aspire to make the impossible possible. And whether you're doing that and pursuing a career in aerospace studies or research or as an astronaut or whether you're doing that as a clinician, doesn't really matter. You know, If we believe that it's impossible to find a cure for cancer, we're not going to find a cure for cancer. If we believe it's possible, and I know how very difficult that would be and how challenging it would be, then it may very well be possible. But we can't find solutions if we believe that there are no solutions. That's some really excellent advice. We are very grateful for you coming out here um, to have this stellar conversation with us. Thank you so much. Thanks. My pleasure. Space has always been something that has fascinated humans, but now we live in a time where there is increased innovation in the field that makes it possible to really expand the horizons of our thinking about the future of the species outside of the planet that we have evolved on. This comes with a lot of challenges, and there are efforts ongoing around the world to identify these challenges and to solve them. We discussed what the future holds for this field and found out what research to look out for from the Canadian Space Agency. We really had a blast on this episode and we hope you enjoyed it too. Be sure to check out our next episode where we explore the science behind psychedelic drugs. This episode was hosted by myself, Swapna Malabathula, and Yagnesh Latimore. Samia Vasantha Kumar, Melissa Galati, and Sina Hadapur assisted with content creation and some of the interviews. Photography was done by Nathan Chan and Changmo Kim. Alex Jacob was the audio engineer. A very special thank you to our guests, astronaut Dr. Dave Williams, Dr. Lawrence Harris, Pierre-Alexandre Fournier, Marika Decourt, and Dr. Shane Journey for speaking to us and sharing all of their wonderful insights. We also thank all the people who spoke to us for the Word on the Street segment. And of course, thank you for listening. Until next time, keep it raw. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.